The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm at Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz, and I am happy to welcome us, uh, welcome to uh, the program today, Kelly Rodriguez, who's the CEO of Forge Global. Kelly, it's great to see you again, and thanks for being with us. Great to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. So I want to do a little level setting to make sure people understand what you guys do. Um, so give us a, a sort of brief overview of of Forge's business, and then we'll kind of get into more nitty-gritty. Great. Um, well, broadly, we think of ourselves as an infrastructure provider for the private markets. But within that, uh, there's a core marketplace where investors in over 70 countries uh, can buy and sell uh, secondary private shares in many of the world's most sought after unicorns. But in addition to that core trading business, there's a data business where you can subscribe to and get information about uh, what's traded before, at what price, um, indications of interest across 700 companies. Um, uh, there's also a custodial co- capability where you could hold your assets with us. And then we provide a service to companies that want to run organized liquidity programs, but they want to do it at market-based pricing in sort of an auction format. So that combination of trading, data, and custody is what makes up Forge. Got it. So in effect, you are providing, uh, it's a market for shares of companies that have not yet IPO'd. These are largely largely venture-backed companies, although I presume that there could be other structures there, but there are, uh, there are individuals and institutions that own shares in these companies. Um, and then you have people who want to sell them and people who want to buy them. And, and That's right. In, in the middle. How, um, people have been trying to do this for a while and it's taken a little time for the market to develop. Give us a little sense of the history here and where we are in the evolution of this market for um, for equity that's traditionally not nearly as liquid as, say, a public market stock. Yeah, it's, it's been at least a 10-year road to get here, and we're still kind of early in the market. If you think about it, there's about 1,300 unicorns now in the world, mm. valued at something like $4.6 trillion. But if you go back a couple of decades, companies were going public at about a $500 million valuation. There weren't unicorns in the world, and hence the name. But in the last uh, four or five years, um, there's been a shift that's happened. And that is companies are recognizing now that if they're going to stay private for 12, 13, 18 years, which is what Palantir was when they went out last year, you eventually have to acknowledge that your shareholders and your employees, if they're on that journey, they need to have access to be able to sell their stock. A fund life is five to 10 years. 
an employee's stock options vest in four typically. And if you work at a place for eight years, you, you, you've got to have a way to deal with this. So companies now are starting to realize that to retain talent and to have access to an evolving pool of capital, this is not just venture capitalists now. The investors that are coming into these deals globally are family offices, hedge funds, investors that used to only invest in IPOs are now coming into these companies mm -hmm. pre-IPO. So it does create a range of requirement to provide liquidity and that liquidity at scale requires technology and infrastructure. So it's evolving, but we're still pretty early. Last year we did about 3.2 billion of transaction volume. And if you think about that against 4.6 trillion and we're one of the market leaders in the space. So it's still pretty early. Still early. So one, one thing I'm curious about is uh, there was a time when, um, uh, venture back companies were uh, were not always so cooperative about allowing transactions in their shares. It affects their cap table. They they get nervous about wanting to control who owns shares in their um, in their um, in their companies. And I wonder if if uh, that's loosened. So, like, is it largely the case that companies are comfortable with this? And in fact, in some cases. As you say, they they have a real incentive to do this because they want to provide some liquidity to their uh, to their long uh, you know long term employees who may not yet be where the company might not yet really be ready to exit. Yeah, I think I think a company, uh, rightfully so, wants to know who's on their cap table, and they want to feel comfortable with who's on their cap table. Right. And while that that persists, uh, I think there is a comfort that happens when you're ready to do it. And, and until then, uh, you may not be comfortable. And so part of what we do here is because we have this data product, uh, whenever there's indications of interest, um, we notify a company. If employees show up and want to sell their stock, we notify a company. And so it's really important that if you're a CEO or a board of directors, if you've got pent up liquidity demands in your stock, you want to know about it because you'd rather know that than have your employee quit and go some other place like Automation Anywhere or SpaceX where they offer formalized liquidity programs right. and they've got friends that work in these other places. And I feel the same way about Forge. We went public, you know, last quarter, but uh, I, I wanted to know when employees wanted liquidity because I wanted to take care of them and not have it surprise me. So, so um, let's just detour for a second. Since you uh, you, you mentioned the IPO, you you guys did a SPAC deal, I think, in just very recently, right? It was uh, in March. In March. Um, so it's uh, brand new. I think you've had one quarter, uh, one earnings quarter reported so far. The stock has been. I, had, I would be remiss not to point out that the stock has been wildly uh, volatile. Um, you're well above the. Um, uh, the SPAC price. Uh, so I think when I looked this morning, the stock was around nineteen dollars. Uh, the typical SPAC price is ten. Um, but you've been as like high into the thirties. The stock just has huge volatility, and I, I wonder if you had any thoughts on what that was about. I mean, and whether you've become sort of a proxy in some ways for um, for the the private equity uh, or, or the, the venture capital market. I'm curious how you think about that. Well, we deliberately 
set out to be the first uh, private marketplace to be public. We we thought that, that was important for the very reason you bring up, which is the, the, the world and regulators still don't allow unaccredited investors to buy and sell private stock. And we understand the protections that they're seeking. But we also felt like Forge as an infrastructure provider to the private market could be viewed as a proxy for participating in the private markets. And when right. you've seen, you know, periods of, uh, of, of, of up and to the right, as we've seen in the last several years, you know, we've done well with that. And so we, we did we did want to offer our stock to investors that otherwise couldn't buy a single issue or name in the private market. Right. On the subject of volatility, everything's volatile right now because of the trifecta of the war and interest rates and inflation. And we're no different. I mean, we're part of the public market. We don't control that. We've been, you know, we've been enthusiastic about our long-term prospects. Mm -hmm. We've tried not to look at the stock every day and they tell you not <laughs> to do that, but we do anyway because it's been kind <laughs> it's of a wild amazing. ride. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're continuing to stay focused on building uh, a great and very large global business. And that's our, that's our goal. But um, yeah, there's a lot of movement in everything right now. Uh, and we thankfully we had I, I was just at a at Draper's conference a couple uh, a week ago and I talked about us being the last SPAC standing because we got out in Q1 and it looked in Q4 like the SPAC market was going to get really, really hard. And so we're super grateful that we were able to do that with the support of our investors. Got it. OK, so let's talk a little bit about um, what you're seeing in um, in the market, the. Uh, yeah, I would note that you guys do a monthly update that's on your website. Uh, that's very helpful to give kind of get some color on the state of the private, um, the, the the secondary market in private shares, and of course the public market. Private public market has been hugely volatile. Has been particularly in technology shares, which tend to dominate the uh, the list of uh, unicorns. Um, the, the, you know, public market tech stocks have gotten killed, um, over the last six months or so, as, as we all know, it's basically a bear market in technology shares. You have lots of things that are down 30, 40, 50, 60%. And as you guys have pointed out in, in your research materials, recent IPOs have, uh, yours notwithstanding, have generally been very badly treated in the public market and people who bought on the IPO price have generally gotten um, pretty badly hurt here. So how is that translated into, um, into your market? What are you seeing in terms of behavior of buyers and sellers and the level of activity? Give us a snapshot of what's going on. Yeah, sure. Um, well, we, we started publishing this private market update to wrap the data that's available uh, through Forge Data or Forge Intelligence is the name of our product. But we mm -hmm. wanted to put some insights around it and start to publish that. And the most recent one that we put out uh, really covers uh, the first quarter uh, and a little bit of an uh, April. Mm -hmm. And um, a couple of things of note, the, the sentiments that started in December of last year as the markets came down, we started to see increased activity from sellers. This has been a market that in the last five years, with as hot as the stock market has been, supply and sellers have been harder to find than, uh, than, than demand, than investors. Right. Well, that flipped. And so now what you have is a period of time where there are more sellers and a lot more. 
And I think the dynamic that exists today, we describe as, as price discovery equilibrium or disequilibrium. There's a, there's a disjointedness right now. And here's how I would explain it. You have sellers that have come in that want to sell right now. The market's volatile and investors around the world expect a discount. But a lot of sellers in the market, um, now this number has changed over time, didn't want to give a discount because they're operating under the psychology of 2021, even though it's a different time now in you know Q1 and Q2 right. of 2022. Now, now, so, but so, so one thing to make, I think I want to make clear here, Kelly, is like when you say a discount, are we talking about a, now that's like if you were in the public market and you were saying that, right, it would be like a discount to yesterday's close, say, right? But like, they don't have. There is no like yesterday's close necessarily, right? Because the, the the trading is not uh, isn't so liquid as that. So I presume we're talking about relative to the last round. Is that how you think about the discount? Well, relative to the last round, or relative to what is being offered. Hmm. And I guess what I mean by that is, if the, the private markets have historically, the, our marketplace in recent years has sold shares that have been at a premium of the last round. And if you think about rounds happening once a year, if you're buying six months after the last round, then you would expect to pay a premium. As an example, in Q4 of 2021, the average trade that happened on Forge was at a 58% premium to the last round. Now that last round could be a month ago, could be 10 months ago. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the end of Q1, where we, where we sit now in Q2, the, the, the premium is at a 24% premium of the last round. And so the discount is all from the expectation of that premium. And in mm -hmm. some cases, over the price that's being offered. Because if you're an employee or a holder of those shares, you expect to get paid what someone else got paid or what has been sure. uh, you know, traded in the last couple of days. And so that's moved. And um, and I think what we see is buyer and seller sentiment have to overlap for there to be a trade to happen. Now, it's important to point out that if if 24 percent is the discount that is being I'm sorry, 24 percent is the premium that's being paid right now. A trade won't happen if somebody else wants to buy that same stock at at a, at a 10 percent premium. Right. So so right now we're watching this concept of price discovery equilibrium very carefully. And that's one of the reasons why you've seen volume in the private market slow in Q1. That's interesting. So, cause you, so you have on the one hand, um, uh, so if I'm a longtime employee, I, and I wonder, well, this is an interesting question. I wonder, does it depend on where I came in? So like, if I, if I was an early employee, if I have, <laughs> I have stock going back to the seed stage and I, you know, maybe my, my shares are priced in pennies. Um, I may not be that particular about exactly the number that I, I get because I know that I'm going to make a lot more money. On the other hand, if if you were a late stage, uh, if you were a late stage in, in uh, investor uh, in the current environment where we have seen some companies, so Instacart notably, for example, recently mm -hmm. lowered their valuation estimate. Um, and I presume there's actually a lot of that going on that doesn't actually rise above the surface where we can see it um 
your attitude might be different. You might be a little more reluctant yes. to, to, to want to take a, a, a discount on shares where you're actually maybe not making any money or losing money, as opposed to the early, early investors who um, uh, might be. It's to, interesting. We okay. have a whole section of our site now, which is dedicated to early as everything. Hmm. And, and, and what we do is we show companies that have recently gone public and we show how they're trading uh, relative to their IPO versus how they're trading relative to their last private round. And uh, the, the, the data is pretty interesting. Of all the companies that we're tracking in the 2021 IPO class, only one is up uh, from their 2021 IPO, and that's Aura Biosciences. Now, they're up 18%, let's say. But if you go back to their last private round, they're up 2,000%. Uh, right. Same with Affirm. If you look at Affirm, and I love Affirm, uh, I know Max Lefkin, and they're down 56% from their IPO, but they're up 70% from their last private round. And so that really strikes at the sentiment you're talking about, Eric. If you're, if you're someone who worked there and when they raised their Series B, then, you know, uh, a 9% discount, and I'm going to give you this number now because people are asking me. If you look at the first quarter of 2022, mm -hmm. the trades that happened on Forge and the same companies that traded in Q4 are trading at around 9% lower. So 9% is kind of a lot if you're trading public stock. But in private right. stock, if you were in the Series B, 9% uh, discounts probably feels pretty good to you. Right. I mean, if you to make up some numbers, if you were... You know, your stock was priced, let's call it a dollar. We'll just make up a number. And uh, and and now you have to take, uh, I don't know, $45 instead of $50. Um, okay. Yeah. I can do that uh, because you are getting liquidity for stock that you weren't, uh, you weren't realizing. And now you can go buy your Tesla or a new house. Well, yeah, people still need to buy a house and send their kids to college. So, yeah, they're, they're going to make the trade. Do, do you um do you, do you think that over time that a bid ask spread, if you want to call it that, um, which has slowed the completion rate, right? Because there's just like you have because what you do, it would seems to me, I'll, I'll, you could tell me if this characterization is fair. But on the one hand, you have people who like have a higher level of urgency to get liquid, and that could be either because a maybe other parts of their portfolio or um, are suffering or B they're worried about what's going to happen. And they, or they're just worried about the economy. There's lots of reasons why that could be true. And on the other hand, you have buyers who might smell opportunity, right? I, I can buy, I can buy, you know, X, Y, Z, uh, biosciences, uh, at a discount cheaper than I would have been able to get it last quarter or the quarter before that. Um, and to your point, um, they are quite aware, I think of the math you laid out, which is that, um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the returns are much higher, uh, on even on late stage, um, investing or maybe in particular late stage investing than for the IPO investor. And so the question is, can we get closer to a sort of an equilibrium point, uh, which would then allow, you know, in effect the volumes to go up and, and make for a more efficient market? Well, that's, that's really the core of what we set out to do. And the reason we launched the data product last year, and we're already seeing this in the numbers, if you are going to buy and you're interested in private stock, 
you you want to see this data. You want to understand what you should be paying sure. and what you should be selling for. And, and the more information you have about that, the more comfortable you are that you're in the zone. And that creates more volume and more confidence. And we've already seen this. The people that have subscribed to Forge Intelligence, the, the institutions particularly, because that's mm -hmm. who it's targeting initially, mm -hmm. they're translating into more trades because they've got more information about what's come before them and IOIs from either buyers and sellers, indications of interest about what they'd be willing to sell or buy at. So once you have access to that, then your confidence level goes up. And I think that's part of what we see as a core piece of the infrastructure for the private markets. And look, if you look at the public markets, uh, the New York Stock Exchange, their holding company, ICE and NASDAQ and exchanges all around the world make more of their money today off from data than they do trade settlement fees. Right. And there's a, and that's that's basically what's coming to the private market. Do, do you um, I wonder how you think about um, the risk level to individual investors who want who are interested in this? Because they see, you know, they they say they they read your data and they see. I'm going to get outsized returns if I invest early rather than wait for an IPO. And so they're trying to be smart. They want to own some private stocks. And, um, and, and yet, um, you know, they're, the protections are not the same, right? Like they don't, they don't file 10 Qs, right? Like there's not as much data about some of these companies. And so I wonder whether, um, whether there's any sort of intermediate vehicle. So maybe I want to own a basket of, of, mm -hmm. Uh, private shares and uh, you know so i wondered if there are existing um structured products like that that might uh that have emerged and whether that might be a good way for an individual investor to think about getting exposure yeah we we, we definitely uh believe in that and in fact uh we're holding our own uh webinar featuring a couple of fund managers who are doing just this and if you think about it, um, picking an individual stock, uh, I think the return data that we have obviously makes it attractive in the private market. But if you want to diversify and you want to hold a basket of these uh, as kind of a long-term strategy, then, uh, then, then that's coming. And that, that kind of product requires data uh, because a fund manager, unless you're a VC, you want to have some systematic way of picking what's in that basket. Right. You don't want to just say, hey, I'm going to analyze 100 private unicorns and figure out which 30 I'm going to put in this. Value. You, you want to have data. So um, that's coming to market. Today, that's mostly still for accredited investors. But mm -hmm. as these products get listed as uh, either interval funds or indexes on the public exchanges, then you'll see the market really open up. But in a funny way, your original point was true. You know, because Forge serves, uh, you know, over 500 companies have traded on Forge. If you think about the way that we make money off from data and transaction fees, we kind of look like that basket in some ways. Right. But there are products coming to market that will really right. explicitly allow you to invest in 30, 50, 100 names. Um and uh, Equiem is one of them. That's one of the ones that's on our panel. Um, and uh, and others are coming that will be publicly traded. So we're excited about that. Do, do you, um, uh, 
do you think that the valuations that you're seeing in the secondary market, um, do they tend to lag the public market activity? Because there's always a little bit of a, a you know, we see the, the public market, of course, Stacey, like the, the obvious is market to market, like when the market's open, like every second, right? Like we, we know where the market is right this second. Um, but we don't know that necessarily about about the private market. And and so I and and to your point on the sort of gap between buyers and sellers and the and, and indications of interest, like is there a there tend to be a lag like in the way that valuations uh, flow from public to private? Like and and, and, you know, and I, I, I would note, right, like when you're talking about like Last year, you know, or, or, or you know, certainly during the the, the rally in stock prices, um, you saw uh, value. At your point, right, you saw valuations in the private market well above the last uh, uh, last round because people are anticipating we got a great IPO market. We're going to get this thing public. I'm going to make a lot of money, etc. Yeah, I mean, look, if you just look at last year uh, over this year, you could you can see it in the numbers. Uh, we grew uh, about 75% organically year over year in 2021 over 2020, and the markets were up and to the right. Those are the biggest IPO years in history. Right. If you take a look at how the market has declined since Q4, um, and you compare that to the pricing data I just cited, where we're down roughly 9%, from Q1 to Q4, the public markets are probably down in the 20s. Right. And in Q4, when the market started to slip, we didn't see any price differential. So there is a there is a lag, there is a latency. And part of that has to do with the private markets not being as liquid. So even if you wanted to sell it in Q4 and you had a buyer in Q4, that trade might not happen until Q1. Right. Um, and so, yes, there is some some latency. And that's why price discovery is so important and ultimately an efficient way to make a trade. So structurally in the private markets, there are these SPVs that sit on cap tables. We've got over a hundred of, the, of them on cap tables. Today. SPV, SPV is. That's uh... a special purpose vehicle. It's like a fund that sits on a cap table. Right. And if you're, if you're buying and selling in one of those, that trade can happen relatively quickly like in a couple of days. But if you're going through and doing a direct purchase from a shareholder that's already on a cap table, well, companies have certain policies in place and rules about how you transfer and it's gotta get approved and go through a process. And that can take two weeks, it could take four weeks, it could take six weeks. So right. that efficiency along with the data discovery is what we're working on so that trades can happen faster. And the faster they happen, with more price discovery, the less latency uh, to the to the general broad markets that you're going to find. And we're seeing that now, if you compare it back to when the pandemic hit, you're starting to see more efficient price discovery. That's part of, again, why we wanted to uh, build an infrastructure play for the private markets. Kelly, do you guys publish any of the data on like which companies are seeing the most activity? Right. So like so because one one question, right, you know, obviously to your point, right, there's what, 1300 um, unicorns. Mm -hmm. we, they're not there's not active trading in 1300 unicorns. Right. So for a whole host of right. reasons, some of them uh, might not allow it. Some of them 
I don't know. I mean, there'd be a, a lot of reasons why you might not see activity. But so if I was going to get into this market, the first thing I want to know is, well, well, what's available? <laughs> like, where, yeah, yeah. Where, you know, can I buy? I'm sure that like, you know, so if you think about, so the largest uh, ones, right? You think about, I don't know, Stripe or you think about mm -hmm. uh, SpaceX or you think about like kind of names that people um, may inherently know. They might be the first place that they look. But like, do you publish like like a most actives list? Yeah, list? we publish something called opportunities, and and that really is meant to do a couple of things. It basically says here's what's new that's come to market, mm -hmm. uh, and it can also say here's what's active that's in market. And um, if 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 you were a subscriber to our data product, you will actually see what's trading. <laughs> You'll see what's active, right. and in most cases, the most active, tr actively traded name is going to be a name that has got a pending IPO. Like everyone knows they're going public, they've announced they're going public. Mm -hmm. We kind of know when they're going public, and that draws a lot of attention. Uh, as do the really large cap decacorns. Now, mm -hmm. interestingly, some of those don't trade because the second something becomes available. Uh, there's immediate demand for it. And so it's hard to get, but um, you know, it's a range, but to answer your question, last year we had about 200 names, mm -hmm. unique names trade. Now we've traded historically 500, but in every, any given period of time, there's a different set of active names. So for example, last quarter, last year in Q3, when Palantir went, um, that was the most actively traded uh, name on the platform. And I think we did close to $400 million of trade volume in that name. So, uh, but then that's public and the next quarter it's gone. So right. it depends on sort of what's going on in the market. But if it's a long-standing company that's been around for a long time, that's delivering some form of disclosure or published data, then that starts to inform what, um, what can trade more actively. That's interesting that you get a, a surge in volume pre-IPO because the one could argue, well, I could see it two different ways, right? On the one hand, you might say, well, there's still a little bit of risk around, you know, completion of the deal and I'd rather take my money now and maybe I'll take a discount of whatever I think the IPO price is going to be. And I suppose on a buyer side, you might say, no, I want to buy this. I want, if I can get it below the IPO price, I want to buy it ahead of time. And, and you do see like, I mean, historically, right. Like we've seen with like late stage, like kind of uh, uh, late stage rounds where you've got um, uh, like even mutual fund companies, like the, you know, yes. these and T Rose and people like that tend to like late stage uh, deals because they get better returns and they can get larger allocations and stuff like that. Are, are you seeing those kinds of players participate in the market, like large, institutions can they get oh yes enough volume oh, yes. in fact if you take a look at the the direct listing phenomenon that has started now we're the ipo window is all but closed at this point right. but if you look last year at the companies that went out on direct listings we saw particular volumes from what have historically been ipo allocation or syndicate investors come into the private markets we saw this with slack uh we saw this with uh Palantir. We saw this with Spotify back in 2018 um, because uh, the companies come into market. They're not raising capital for the most part in a direct listing. 
and a large institution wants to have a piece of that company. And so they'll come in and buy it uh, in the private space before the company actually lists. You see that more in directs because historically those direct listings did not actually raise capital on an IPO, right. on a conventional IPO. Right. But even, even in a conventional IPO, we could see institutions, large institutions and hedge funds start to come onto the platform and look at what was available in those names that were going out. And I think that's, that's a trend that's here to stay. Okay. Um, we're, we're running short on time. I want to just ask a couple of last questions. Um, one is, I'm, I'm curious if there's any participation on the private equity side. Like those deals tend to be a little bit structured differently. So you have, you know, large institutions, a different, generally different type of institution. Have they participated in this market at all, either as buyers or sellers? Yeah. So, so um, the, the, the whole capital markets uh, sort of segment uh, investing has has shifted somewhat. So PE right. firms who have historically been PE and control buyers have moved into the private markets more. And if you take a look at, you know, Motive, who was our backer, you know, they're sort of this combination of a private equity and venture capital player. And you're seeing mm-hmm. those lines blur. Um, but in terms of private equity backed companies being on the platform, um, that would only be the case if there was a broad set of holders that were looking for liquidity. If a PE firm like a KKR or a Carlisle buys a controlling interest in a company, the chances of them putting it or allowing it uh, to trade on a forge, uh, if it's closely held, are lower. Uh, but those same companies are starting to buy things uh, in, the, in the private uh, sp- sphere. Uh, and certainly in the um, in the late stage sphere, and we're seeing them participate. So yes, but it really comes down to what the holding structure is of those companies. It requires that there are shareholders that want to sell. Okay. So uh, one one other thing I want to touch on briefly is um, there are some other players in this market, and I I I wonder um, I wonder whether in order to fully realize the potential of the market, they need to be um, uh, either interconnected or consolidated. I mean, imagine if like, so, you know, if you think about the public markets, um, yes, you, you know, there's some third market you can trade, you know, there's some other places institutions can trade shares, but for the most part, it's a single market. If I want to buy or sell Microsoft shares, I don't have to shop around necessarily to figure out the best place to do that. I wonder how you think this market evolves over time, whether it's likely to be consolidation or simply maybe a shared. Yeah. Shared um, it, it will definitely consolidate. And, and that's just the nature of any maturing market. Uh, and, and even in the U.S., you've got NASDAQ and you've got the New York Stock Exchange and you've got markets all over the world. Uh, there probably isn't going to be one of these in the world mm-hmm. uh, at scale. There's probably going to be two or three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now, um, there are dozens of small players around the world and probably two or three of them that are smaller than Forge here in the U.S. And I suspect that as capital and Forge raised over $200 million mm-hmm. uh, when we went public, um, the, the, high, the highly capitalized players will drive some of that consolidation. And, and so, you've already done, you did one acquisition. Yes, already. yes. We acquired mm-hmm. shares post uh, back in 2019, we closed the deal in 2020. 
Um, yeah, so w- w- you'll see more of that. It's just a natural phenomenon. And part of the reason we went public was to, uh, was to be able to use our public stock to acquire other companies. Okay. Last question. I'm, I'm curious if you had any thoughts about the outlook uh, for the uh, for valuations and for for the market as we you know we are in this very volatile uh, I, I, I think as you mentioned earlier you know you've got like all kinds of issues war macroeconomic uh, uh, uncertainty fear of recession rising interest rates all the stuff we know uh, we've all been uh, talking about in in recent months given all that how are you feeling about the outlook for uh, you know, for your own uh, business and also for the um, uh, for the secondary market. Yeah, long term, I couldn't be more excited about it because if I look at some of the data out there around how many unicorns there are in the world, uh, how much of it trades, what the returns look like, I've never been more excited about the prospects of the private market and forge in it than I am right now. Even with the dislocation that's going on now. Uh, I mean, cycles come and go, and there are is a convergence of macroeconomic, macroeconomic events go, taking place right now that's particularly right. acute. So long term, amazing; short term, tough. Right. Uh, that's that's how I'm thinking about it. Got it, Kelly. Thank you so much uh, for this. This was really fun, and we'll have to check in again uh, later in the year and and see how things are going as the world. Uh... Uh, turns on. We'll we'll see. Uh, there's lots going on. Um, Thank you. Thanks to uh, everyone for joining us today. Um, please join us again tomorrow. Uh, we'll have a session on the housing crisis. Quentin Fotrell, the managing editor of per, uh, Personal Finance at Market Watch, uh, will talk to um, Emma Ackerman, another Market Watch reporter, and Adam Perdue, who's an economist at Texas A&M, about the real estate market. Thanks again to everyone, and please stay safe. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.